Hey, I'm Jesse. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Here's verse 14. Don't become partners with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? That's Satan. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? You cannot serve two masters. You cannot worship two gods. And there are fundamental worldview differences between somebody who believes in God and someone who disavows God entirely. In centuries past, there have been some grotesque abuses of this passage as if to interpret light and darkness as though they were shades of skin tone. Okay, a couple centuries ago, this passage was utterly abused, as you can see just by basic reading comprehension. It has nothing to do with race. This is not at all a racial passage. In the context, it's written to the Corinthians, who are surrounded by incredible lostness. There's this book called The Benedict Option. I don't totally agree with it, but there are contexts in which Christians do have the ability to cloister, as it were. And in those, in those realms, you have like marriage, one clear example, um, but it's not all of your whole business life. There, there, are, there are times when Christians ought to cloister and to hole up and to have a huddle, you know, and say like, this is where we come to heal. This is where we come to have accountability. This is where we have, uh, we have our own expression of our Christian faith in such a way that it's mutually edifying other Christians. And then this is our missional mode. This is where we're out in the world, but not of the world. We're sent out like sheep among wolves. So we're as innocent as doves, but we're shrewd as serpents, as Jesus would describe it. But there are also these contexts, there are also these spaces into which Christians can retreat and be built up and be restored in counseling couples. Uh, for marriage, this is something that's come up and I've made some people, uh, I hope, temporarily mad at me by applying this passage this way. If you've got a woman who has confessed Christ as Lord, she does not live for herself. She lives for God. She's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. She has a worldview that is based upon the truth. She has a fear of the Lord. Therefore, she knows where knowledge itself begins. She does not devote her life to her own selfish ambitions or lusts or desires, but is strictly toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then she is engaged to a man who denies that Jesus is Lord, does not believe in God, and therefore does not know where knowledge itself begins. His motivations are going to be largely driven by his own flesh, his own selfish ambitions, his own desires. Uh, it's, it's not going to work out well when the, the two people try to raise a child because they're coming from radically different worldviews. They're speaking different moral languages. Like her whole soul is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his soul is currently hardened, currently prone to the same depravity from which she has been delivered for all of eternity forevermore. What can such light have in common with such darkness? the two of them would have fundamentally different answers to the same basic questions. Do not then be unequally yoked with non-believers. So this is why as a pastor, when it comes to officiating wedding ceremonies, I've had to have that difficult conversation with a young couple where 
you know, she's a Christian, he's not a Christian, or sometimes and rarely like he's a Christian and she's not a Christian and the two of them want to get married. I've got to tell the Christian, what are you doing here? Like, look, I can't, I cannot officiate this wedding ceremony. I can officiate a wedding ceremony between two non-Christians because marriage is part of common grace. But I cannot officiate a wedding between a Christian and a non-Christian. And so my counsel to a few couples over the years who have approached me and asked me to officiate their wedding ceremonies has been like, okay, first things first, let's get your fiance saved here. <laughs> and if he's not ready to give his life to Christ, then you gotta find another officiant. And I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. That's where it begins though. And then over time, that couple may go, they'll, they'll eventually go find some pastor somewhere who got you know, ordained at ordination.com. It's like, you know, calling yourself a cop because you make yourself a badge. Like, like, they would go find somebody to officiate their wedding and then inevitably, invariably, a marriage that's built upon two fundamentally opposed worldviews is gonna come into conflict. And to whom do they go? But the guy who, not the guy who was like, sure, I'll officiate your wedding, but the guy who was like, no, based on what the word of God says, I can't be party to this. I love you with all my heart. I just can't, I can't officiate your wedding because of what scripture says. They would come to me. And then actually I've seen the Lord use that to bring brokenness and repentance on the husband's part and he would give his life to Christ. So as a side note to this, by the way, Christian women are more prone to this than Christian men, it seems. Uh, Christian women don't, don't get impatient. Don't feel like you gotta violate scripture in order to get married. Okay, also come to the Redemption Church because we've got a lot of single Christian men that I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm praying that God brings wives to and I'm praying that they all get married. All right, so come to the Redemption Church because that's where they're at. But this, this passage has to do with the fundamental difference between those whose faith is in Christ and those who disavow Christ. What fellowship does, is there with light and darkness? What agrees, agreement does Christ have with Belial, have with the devil? Okay, like you can't serve two masters. What does a believer have in common with an un- believer. And he's going to go on to say, and we'll cover this tomorrow, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Uh, and tomorrow we'll talk about a story from the Old Testament about what happens when somebody tried to put a pagan idol in the temple of God. There are some of those contexts in which we as Christians do need to cloister up. Now you're going to see this is fundamentally different from uh, living a life on mission. So there are spaces in which Christians can go and be restored and put back together again. But if you spend all of your time in that holy huddle and you never go and make disciples of Jesus Christ of all nations, you're never out like a sheep among wolves, which Jesus sent his disciples out this way. You're not ever practicing shrewdness like a serpent while living as innocently as a dove. You're never in the world while not being part of the world then you're living an entire life that is devoid of risk and devoid of obedience to our commissioning to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow, we'll talk more about this passage. It's really intriguing, isn't it? <laughs>